If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to page 1022. It's 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. We'll read that and then the first 10 verses of chapter 3. As you turn there, I'll just remind you, tonight we're coming to the end of our series on the dysfunctional families of the Bible. We could have taken years and years on this. Uh, there's lots of material, but we just made it a short one so we don't get too, too depressed. We've already, in four short weeks, seen sibling rivalries. We've seen elderly parents taken advantage of. We've seen inheritance issues. We've seen a blended family with bitter divisions. We've seen spousal idolatry. We've seen marital infidelity. We've seen all kinds of mess, and that's in the first few pages of Genesis. Just shocking, and it also just tells us that the Bible is recording real human history because this is the history of many families that you know. Amazingly, somehow we've seen God still at work in these families. Praise God. Praise God uh, for that. But thinking about all that pain, you can understand why some, some people I talk to, often young adults, will say to me, I, I don't ever want there to, I don't want to get married, I don't want a family, because I never want there to be a chance that I would inflict the pain on someone that my family inflicted on me. You could understand that kind of pain. And then on the other hand, some people who come from really lovely, happy families think, if we can just tweak our schedule and fix a couple of relationship things, we'll experience domestic bliss, kind of a heaven on earth. And the Bible, this is not, neither of these are the Bible's perspective. We see a realistic thing about families, that, that our families of origin, as wonderful as they are, as much as they're an institution for God carrying out his plans in the world, they are not the end of the story. They are not our final hope, but scripture here, especially in 1 John, is pointing us to a better final hope, life as part of the family of God. So let's, let's pray and then read together from 1 John. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would show us your immense love for us tonight. May we not just understand it, but may we see and feel your love and know your love and delight in your love and be transformed by your love so that we love our own families more faithfully, yes, but also so that we can exclaim with John, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen. God's word, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in him, from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's God's word for us tonight. As we come to this passage, it breaks really nicely just into two, two parts. The first part is from chapter 2, verse 28, through the first three verses of chapter 3. We see that Christians are children of God. Christians are children of God. And then in the second part of the passage, we see that children of God should bear a family resemblance, that we should be righteous, uh, not lawless. So Christians are children of God. Given that you're you're a child of God, you should bear a family resemblance. And so John is developing those two ideas in this passage. So first, Christians are children of God. In verse 28, we see that. And we see that because they have been born of him. John addresses them as little children and then clarifies what he means. Why is he addressing the family of God as little children while they've been born of God? What's John, what John's not saying is that everyone is John's, God's child. And we know that because later in the passage, he says some are of the, their father in heaven and some are of the devil. Their father is the devil. Um, but certainly it's true that all people have been created by God, but, but when John says born of God here in verse 29, and then five other times in this letter, he's talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about uh, the life given by the Spirit to be uh, born again, to receive new spiritual life from God. And he adds then that God's children should abide in him. Now little children abide in him. So our spiritual life doesn't just originate from God, but it needs to be sustained by him like the vine We abide in the vine, and our life is sustained by him. So that, verse 28, we may have confidence and not shrink with shame at his coming. And so you gather all up those first couple verses, you see that everything is from God. We are, yes, we're created by him. Our new life comes from him as we're born again by the Spirit. And then we are sustained by him as we abide with him. And so everything is from God. All our life is from God, from whom all blessings flow. And that leads John in chapter 3, verse 1, then, to just explode with joy and wonder. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. You could translate it, behold, look. He's not going to lecture. He's going to say, look. He wants them to see. He wants them, he's marveling, and he wants us to marvel. Many of you have been in churches for decades. And it's easy to hear, God loves you, and to say, of course he does. <laughs> but, is, but John is saying, I don't want you to, to understand it like when you look at the menu at a restaurant. I want you to understand it like when the food is in front of you and you taste it and it's so good. He's saying, look at this. Look, behold. He goes on to describe the kind of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That phrase translates a Greek word that originally meant of what country? What, where is this from? It's, John Stott writes of this, it's as if the Father's love is so otherworldly that John wonders what country it came from, what world it came from. And the word almost always implies astonishment. 
It's a great, great thought. The, the type of love is remarkable. So is the fact that then he, John goes on and says that we should be called children of God. In, the, in this ancient culture, part of um, legitimizing the birth was when the father named the child, he claimed the child as his own. He said, this is my child. And so for God to call us as children is to say, you are truly, you are legitimately, you belong to me. You are my child. And so John is, is rejoicing in that, that God recognizes us as his own. And then to leave no doubt, John exclaims at the end, and so we are. And so we are the children of God. In Christ, we are children of God. It's less a statement of fact and more an exc exclamation of joy. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. The love of God is, is such a different kind of love, and the family of God is such a different kind of family that these things mark you as different. And so John continues on, and he says that the reason that the world did not know you is because it did not know him, it did not know Jesus. So you're different. Jesus said as much in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that they hated me before you. How is the love of God different than the world's love? Well, we'll see in verse 2 that it's a love that never gives, gives up on you, which contrasts so sharply with some of our own earthly experiences. But then verses 4 to 10 go on to show that the love of God is different from the world's love because it's full of grace and truth. It's full of righteousness and acceptance. And that's, that's a re really, really critical thing. He talks about righteousness and love throughout the rest of the passage. And this is different than the world's version. Our world loves the kind of love that's all about acceptance with no hint of righteousness. This is what a lot of the culture wars of the last decade have, have been about, in fact. The, the, but the problem with this kind of love is that it's only half the equation. And half love is like half truth. Often it's worse than none at all. It's misleading. It goes down easy. But without truth as a guide, it can take you places that you never could have imagined. On the other hand, the world also understands conditional love, performance-based love, a love that's, that's based on only truth with no, with no compassion, no softness. It's a different kind of half-love, the uncharming kind that no one wants to be around. But heavenly love combines grace and truth, righteousness and a gentle familial love. And acceptance. And that's the kind of love the Father has given to us. God loves us and receives us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are, as we see in the coming verses. In verse 2, John invites us then to wrestle with an obvious question. If, God, if we're part of God's family and God's family is so wonderful, why is it so imperfect? Why is it so imperfect? Does becoming a Christian just mean that you now have two dysfunctional families to deal with, your, your family of origin and the church family? Well, yes and no. So look at verse 2 because it actually is really, really encouraging. John recognizes that the, the Christian experience of God's family in this life is real, but also unfinished, incomplete. It's not there yet. And this is the tension of the already and the not yet in the Christian Life. We are already God's children, but the full meaning has not yet appeared. That, that's encouraging, isn't it? God's not surprised by your failures, but he also knows better than you that you're going to get there. Not by your own efforts, but by his guarantee. 
So John continues, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Christ appears to bring us to glory, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And that idea points to the doctrine of glorification. We could think of this golden chain of salvation where we go from, from being from faith and regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Mike Horton defines glorification as the bodily presence of the whole church with its glorified head in the everlasting presence of the triune God on the last day. A great definition. The bodily presence of the whole church with its glorified head in the everlasting presence of the triune God on the last day. When he appears, we shall be like him. If we take this language at face value, it's shocking. It's actually shocking. We shall be like him. John Calvin writes, once wrote about this idea, let us take note that the purpose of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God, and if we may so speak, to deify us. Whoa, that's shocking. We shall be like him. What's he saying? He's not saying, neither John Calvin or the Apostle John, neither of them are saying uh, that we become divine. He's saying that our glorified capacity for union with Christ when we are in heaven glorified, our capacity for image-bearing and for experiencing uh, God is so immensely more than what we can imagine in our fallen and sin-twisted state. It is so extraordinary that he can use that kind of language. But God became flesh not to make us divine, but to make us fully human so we can be in full communion with him. Unstained, unbroken by sin. Beloved, we are God's children now in the ways that we are. And what we will be has not yet appeared, because we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Maybe there's, there may be no place where we experience this tension between the already and the not yet more than, in, than at home with our own families, right? If you've ever had little children or been in families with little children, you, can, you may be able to imagine a scenario, something... Something like that. Like you, you're kind of forced to be civil to people outside the home just by social expectations. But at home, the real you can really come out. And maybe some of you have experienced something like, you know, the baby is crying and the little kids are fighting with each other and the dad is like banging, trying to get their attention. And the mom saying, if you don't be quiet, I will. And then the phone rings. Mom's phone. And she says, hello, how are you? We're good. Right, <laughs> you feel this tension between you know what should be and what what is, and we the home is where we work these things out. It's it's earthly families are a real world practice field for real world faith. It's where we can learn patience. It's where love gets put to the test in the realest way, and it's where our characters come out um, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. There's a tension between the already and the not yet. The final thing to notice here, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John captures this profound connection between seeing and being. Modern neuroscience is just catching up to this. It's sort of this idea that what you pay attention to shapes your neural circuitry in a way that changes uh, who you are and how you are and how you act, your behavior. John knew long ago there was this connection between seeing and being, and then he continues on in verse three and says, everyone who thus sees him and hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
That as we hope in Christ, our lives will be conformed to his. And so that launches us into the second part of the passage. We are children of God, first part. Second part, as children of God, we bear a family resemblance. However faint. However faint. We want to make a practice of righteousness, not of sin. If you're a child of God, you bear the family resemblance. If you've been, um, you know, often as I've, I've been a father five times, and, and each time, you know, someone will come up and say, oh, he looks just like you. Oh, she has your eyes. Something like that. It's a fun game to play, and people will see that, but, but as a child of God, we bear a family resemblance. Not a physical resemblance, to be sure, but a spiritual resemblance in terms of righteousness. It may not be perfect because we already read what we will be has not yet appeared. But what verses 4 to 10 show us is that it, it will be, it must be noticeable and clear. Even if it's immature, even if it's not fully formed, it should be there. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This phrase makes a practice of or keeps on doing shows up about eight times in, in this passage. So it's important to understand what it means, and it's not hard to understand. It's a, it's a life pattern. It's, it's something that you practice, something that you do regularly. How you practice is how you play. There are two patterns, two trends. One is lawlessness, breaking God's law. The other one is righteousness, living according to God's law of love. Lawlessness, verse 4. It has, this, this verse has one of the most concise definitions of sin in the Bible. Did you know that? Sin is lawlessness. It's very clear it's concise, and the Westminster Confession in question 14, I think, uses this, this verse as, as part of its definition. What is sin? Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is disobedience or not conforming to God's law by omission, by commission. It could be outward acts, or it could be inward posture of the heart or of our thoughts or attitudes. And in contrast, righteousness is doing right. It's lawfulness, if you want. It's, and it's a lawfulness that's motivated and shaped by love. Romans 13, 10, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law because love is the fulfillment of the law. Both Paul and Jesus and John, all of them say something very, very similar. Well, how do I obey God's law and have the right motive of love for people all the time? That's impossible, you might say, if you know yourself. You're right. But praise God for verse 5. He says, Jesus Christ appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In his life, Jesus lived out this kind of perfect, law-fulfilling, love-motivated lawfulness according to the law of God, and he, that is imputed to us when we put our faith in him. And in his death, Jesus took away sin because he paid the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death. So he replaced all lawlessness with perfect righteousness. And then verse 6, so, so we need to abide in him. And if we do, his life flows through us. His spirit is producing the fruit of righteousness in us. And then uh, John goes on in verse 9 to say that God's seed, if you have faith in Christ, God's seed is in you. It's not a physical seed, of course. It's a spiritual seed, the spirit and the word. God is spirit. But it brings about a spiritual resurrection, spiritual adoption that changes our DNA as if a thorn bush was turned into an apple tree. There's a full change from, from someone who 
is breaking God's law without compunction to, to someone who seeks God's righteousness. We don't produce thorns anymore, we produce apples. Now, if you go with that analogy of, of, of bearing fruit, which is a very biblical one, indicated by the seed in verse 9, it may take some years for an apple tree to become fully productive. I don't know how many, three or four or five. You might still have some dead leaves or rotten fruit, but your fundamental nature is united with Christ, and therefore you are part of the family of God, and therefore you are producing what he produces, because where he goes, you, you go. That's why John can say in verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. If you're in Christ by faith, you can rightly be described as righteous for, for a few reasons. One, you could rightly be described in that way because you've been justified by, by faith in Christ. The justification is a legal act. It deals with the guilt of sin, and it means that a sinner is declared righteous by God for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, if you're in Christ, you're righteous. Look at your neighbor say, if you're in Christ, you're righteous. You don't have to. I know that's scary to say. There you go. Good. Thank you. But there's another reason we can be declared righteous or called righteous is that if you're in Christ, you have been and are being sanctified. You're being made holy. You're set apart. And if, if justification deals with the guilt of sin, sanctification is dealing with the corruption and the power of sin. And so... Reformed theology has recognized these two aspects of sanctification. There's definitive sanctification, which is the once-for-all act by God to break our bondage to sin. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And then there's progressive sanctification. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the part where God is at work uh, in us and through us to make us more holy, progressively, growingly, not yet fully, but in a pattern of righteousness. So verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But then verse 8 goes on to say that this works the other way too. Look at verse 8. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. I couldn't get it out of my head. I was, I was picturing like this little playing card with the devil, like sinning from the beginning. It's like such a little tagline for who he is. But anyway, sorry. Is this you? Are you? Do you make a practice of sinning? You could ask questions like, do I have a hardening or growing pattern of doing wrong in my life? Does sin only make me sad when I get in trouble for it? Or does sin only sadden me when I see that it hurts some loved one who's, who's near me? If so, watch out. This is a warning for you. It can happen to religious people, too. It doesn't have to be something dramatically outwardly evil. In, in a very similar passage in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders, and he says to them, if God were you, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See where John gets this from Jesus? And then, then he goes on to say, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. But because you cannot bear to hear my word, you are of your father, the devil. Remember, Jesus is talking to people who had memorized vast tracts of Scripture. But they lack love for him, for Jesus, for his word, and for others. It's there of their father, the devil. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so that leads to an obvious question then. Uh, what about people who love God through Christ, but who still struggle with some sinful habit or addiction? 
is persistent. It won't go away. Well, if that's you, read, read the last part of verse 8. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I think that could be encouraging. Uh, you want to think about your heart in relation to this stubborn sin. Think about your orientation. Is, is your orientation to destroy it by God's power? Is your desire to see it gone from your life? To remove it from your life? To repent of it any time that it shows up again? If so, take heart. Or is your orientation to that sin to treasure it, to kind of hide it, but treasure it, to enjoy it as much as you can without others finding out? Well, that, that, that is a problem. That would be a problem. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you're part of the family of God, you're part of the family business of destroying the works of the devil, even in your own life, however imperfectly, however incompletely. But when he appears, we shall be like him. It has a good end, end point as long as we are, as John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In verse 10, John gives his, his summary of the passage. By this, is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And he kind of gives a negative summary. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So righteousness and love are these two indicators. It's possible, he says, to distinguish between children of the God children of God and children of the devil. We look at what they do, and it doesn't just mean outward compliance with the Bible's rules, it means obedience motivated by love, flowing from a new heart. And love of brother is the ultimate test because those closest to us have the greatest opportunity to get under our skin, and they give us the deepest insight into who we are, so he points to love of brother. And John amplifies what Paul and Jesus have both said, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Howard Marshall has a, has a commentary on, on the epistles, the letters of John. He closes his commentary on this verse with the following thoughts, which I'd just like to read. For those who wish to be God's children, the lesson is obvious. We must examine ourselves to see whether we do what is right. This could be hard advice for a believer who is all too conscious of his own sins and is lacking in confidence. He could well be tempted to doubt his own status as a child of God. But properly interpreted, this text remains a source of comfort, he says. John is describing the ideal character of the Christian in the sense that this is the reality intended by God for him, even if he falls short of it while he still lives in this sinful world. This is the tension in which the Christian lives, and John has portrayed it realistically. The believer, conscious of sin, need not therefore lose heart. This section is a promise of what God intends him to be, and he looks forward to a time when he shall be like Christ at his appearing. It's a wonderful place for us to end as well. Do I love my brother, my sister, my brother in Christ? my sister in Christ, my parents, my children. As the children of God, the power of sin has been broken, which means we can make a practice of righteousness in our lives. Praise God. Not a perfect practice, but a practice nonetheless. And it, even, especially perhaps, in our closest relationships. We have God's seed, verse 9. But we have his new nature that's growing in us, and that gives real victory over sin. That is encouraging. Real but imperfect. Real but incomplete. And in fact, that touches our lives and it proves how we relate 
to others. Families that are full of Christians who are practicing righteousness with each other can live under grace and experience a substantial measure of family life as God uh, intends it. Truth and love, being on mission together for God's glory and enjoying God together along the way. And if you have that, praise God. And if you don't have that, there is such greater, there is a, a much greater hope. Our hope is not in a fully repaired family. There's no such thing this side of heaven. Our earthly families are a key part of God's story, but listen, they were never meant to be the happily ever after part of God's story. You know that? Our ultimate hope is where we're headed as here as part of the family of God. What will be is not yet seen, but it's coming. Our hope is in the Father who can never fail. Our hope is that we are children of God and that when he appears, we shall be like him delighting in the presence of our perfect older brother, Jesus Christ, gazing with love and wonder at the glory of our Heavenly Father, fully alive with the life of his Spirit, who's the Spirit of true love that binds together the family of God. Let's pray. God, we are humbled and awed and we wonder with John at the possibility that we could be part of the family of God. We gaze, we see, we look, we behold with him the kind of love that you have given to us that we should be called the children of God, Lord. And for anyone here who has not seen or tasted or, or believed that, who's not been adopted into your family, I pray that they would, would receive that tonight as a gift from you that they would put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ and become part of the family of God. God, all of us who are in, in Christ live in this tension between the already and the not yet, that we are your children indeed, and yet we are so far from what we will be one day. And Lord, as we struggle with that, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage those who, who are seeking to make a pattern of righteousness and yet seeing how incomplete it is, I pray that you'd encourage them with where you can bring them to. And Lord, for those on the other side who need a caution and a warning, I pray that, that your word would do its work tonight by your spirit. We praise you as we sang earlier. We give, give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And as we turn now to close out our time of worship at the table, Lord, would you encourage us invited for this, this family meal. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.